Celtic Christians talk a lot about thin places, where the line between heaven and earth is so thin that they interfere with one another. That's how Reverend Dr. Russ Levinson concludes the conversation you're about to hear as he describes the tender moment of sitting alone in April 2018 with former President George H.W. Bush and former First Lady Barbara Bush as she was fading away. Her last word on earth, fortified by a lifetime of deeply cultivated faith, was home. And when her husband saw that she'd crossed over the line, he pointed upwards, signaling to his friend and Pastor Russ Levinson that she was in heaven. And then, seven months later, Russ again sat with President Bush, as well as the extended family, as the nation's 41st president, too, passed from this world into the next. Do you think Robin will be there waiting? He asked Russ of his three-year-old daughter, who in 1953 had succumbed to leukemia. This week, Russ has published a new book, Witness to Dignity, which describes the life and faith of the Bushes, who he viewed up close from 2007 onward when he became senior pastor at their Houston church of 50 years. St. Martin's Episcopal, where they were members and where Russ continues to serve as the rector, today has nearly 10,000 members, making it the largest Episcopal church in North America. And over five decades there, President Bush taught Sunday school and Barbara volunteered in countless ministries. Agreeing with other biographers, Russ says the couple was truly replete with the dignity we desire to see in those who govern. But he's written a fast-paced book replete with firsthand stories and humor, a window into family customs, and ultimately the love he and his wife Laura came to feel for both members of the first family. With four years since their passing, this book combines firsthand story and memory and learnings from a greatest generation couple who shaped countless lives. Jeb Bush names in the foreword that the author was one of his parents' most trusted friends. Joining Russ today to talk about the book is Kelsey Dallas, the religion reporter for Deseret News, who also covers the Supreme Court, occasionally even sports. She's a regular participant at Faith Angle conferences, and she asks Russ all the right questions, including about officiating his first state funeral and preaching the homily when each of the Bushes died. And finally, this week, some of us have been feeling rather acutely the loss of Mike Gerson, who, as you likely know, on November 17th, died tragically at age 58 of bone cancer, leaving behind his wife Dawn and two sons, as well as a gaping deficit amongst public intellectuals. Like President Bush 41, Mike had a profound decency, sense of honor, faithfulness, and farsightedness. And regardless of whether you agree with what the Celtics say about that thin line between heaven and earth, his columns and speaking and writing still cry out, though departed. You can almost hear his voice. I guess that's how it works. Enjoy the conversation. Russ, when you accepted the call to St. Martin's, what were your expectations for pastoring a former president and first lady? Well, Kelsey, I, I'm not sure I had any expectations because I had never done that before. <laughs> so uh, I had met the president back when I was in college for about two minutes. And then I had met his son one time when I was asked to offer a prayer at a civic event when I was serving Louisiana. And that was the only time I had been around presidents <laughs> before. So I had heard from my predecessor, 
here at St. Martin's in Houston that they were active members of the church. I didn't know that I wouldn't be able to live into that until I came. And I had heard how warm and personal they were. So, I mean, that other than just kind of having that introduction, I didn't know. But those introductions and those descriptions ended up being very true. Yeah. We'll talk more about the beginning of the closer friendship. How did you get to know them on a a more personal level? Well, again, when I started, I did not know if they would be given their role, whether they would be in church every week or we would see them four times a year or Christmas and Easter or whatever. And it didn't take long to realize that as soon as I got there, they they actually were in church every week. So it's something I do say in the book that if unless they were sick or traveling, ill or traveling, they were in church and uh, not just for church, but for fellowship and events. And that's the kind of relationship they actually had. I'm the fourth rector, senior pastor at St. Martin's, okay? And he had that kind of relationship with all four of the rectors. Now, the first one saw him into his election as vice president, the first rector who came here in 1952 and stayed for 30 some odd years. But his son told me that without fail, almost during the vice presidential years, not during the presidential years, but during the vice presidential years that, that then Vice President Bush would actually call him at his house, usually every Sunday afternoon or evening to say, so how did church go today? Who was, who was at church today? This when he was in D.C. And so having heard those stories, I didn't know if I would be the beneficiary of that or not. But within about two or three weeks of them coming back from Maine, where they spend most of their summer at the time, we were invited out to dinner with the two of them, and we went to a local Chinese restaurant that he loves. And I think I could tell within about three hours, okay, this is not going to be the kind of intimidating relationship I thought it would be. Toward the end of the first meal, I looked over and Barbara and my wife were eating ice cream out of the same bowl. So I thought, okay, these are regular people. And, and we know they are, but you don't know that until you kind of see it up close. Well, as you said, it quickly became less intimidating. So perhaps I know the answer to this next question, but does preparing to give a sermon that a former president is going to hear, is it any different than preparing a sermon for a typical congregation? Yeah, I've been ordained 30 years. I've been in ministry a little over 30 years and got good advice a long, long time ago from a former Southern Baptist pastor for whom I serve, a guy named John Claypool. John was well-known in the Baptist church and then became eventually an Episcopalian. And I worked for John for six years total, four years as a priest, two years before seminary. And John was well-known as a a fantastic preacher and teacher, and and he was a great pastor. And and on the first day of my first sermon that I was going to give with him sitting off to the right of me, we were going in for an early service, 730 in the morning. And he knew that I you know, I was much younger. I'm 60 now, so I was right at 30-something. And he he said, listen, go out there and be yourself. Go out there and give them this sermon as if you've gone to the store, picked out a gift, and you're going to give it to them. It is a gift that you're giving. And he said, and you know, sometimes you buy a gift and people don't like it. <laughs> sometimes they love it. And sometimes they put it on a shelf. And he said, this is your gift. Basically, what he was saying is you don't have to compete with me. Just be yourself. And I do think people in the pews have really good antenna. And I think if they ever sense that you're faking or pretending or a fraud or anxious or whatever it is, then 
it'll come across. And so I, I knew, regardless of who was in the congregation, I knew from the beginning, part of the authenticity is just to be me. And, um, and I felt that the first time they were in the pews. Obviously, there was a little tingle on the back of my neck the first time they came to church. I remember getting ready to come into church and one of my assistants came in and said, well, they're here. They're coming in. The secret service is here and they're going to be in church today. And so I, I kind of took a deep breath. But then I remembered they are members of this church and they're here like everybody else to hear whatever meager words I have to offer at the time. So. I wonder if you might, Russ, maybe dilate on that just a little bit more. I mean, it's it's a big part of the story, the book, your relationship with the Bushes. You came in 07. He had given this Christmas address in 1982, you say. He'd come before the Southern Baptist Convention in 1991 when he was president. There's a, there's a long history here. But there's a story sometimes told up here. I struggle with this thing. But Doug Coe, the old prayer breakfast director, used to say, look, I remember walking around the streets in the mid-90s with a guy from, from Oklahoma, and he, he said, I'm so mad at this guy. This, is, this guy's a scoundrel, sexually infidelity. It's awful. I just, if I saw that guy, I'm telling you, I'd walk right out the room. And all of a sudden, they're literally on the streets of Washington, and they hear the sirens from the motorcade. And down comes the motorcade on that exact street. And he says, oh, 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 look at that, Doug. Look at that, that guy. Look, there's the president right there. There he is. There he is. And I press on that just a little bit to ask, you know, it's built in. The fascination that we have with power is built in. And yet, too, it seems like ministry and friendship can become even more alive when you see that, that spiritual truths are actually true, including with people in power. And I wonder if you might just sort of reflect on times when you saw biblical truths playing out in relationship to the first family. So just to back up a little bit, Josh, when you were talking about whoever he was talking about with sexual infidelity, et cetera, this was not President George H.W. Bush. He was referring to another president, <laughs> another president. That could be a whole other show, actually. Well, I want to know why you wrote this book now. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I think one of the things that so impressed me, and there there's some things I learned in writing the book, but is the consistency in which he relied on our Lord to inform and shape not just his presidency, but his power and his policy. There are three Ps, a little alliteration there here in the morning. But if we go back to the first story, one of the first stories that is often told about him, and I think this is universally told in any book about him, is when he was shot down as a 19-year-old Navy pilot. And then he asked that question, why did God spare me? Not why was I spared, but why did God spare me? And then he ends up spending some time on that submarine that rescued him. And he would say he spent time thinking and pondering that. What did that mean in the providence of God's ways? What did that mean that two of his buddies in the plane did not make it and he made it? And then you begin to see this pattern throughout his life. At the end of the war, he and Barbara were actually together. They didn't know if he was going to be called back, but the end of World War II, suddenly the BE day comes and Everybody breaks into the streets to celebrate, and he and Barbara, of course, I'm sure they did that, but he and Barbara said, we, we sought out a little church because we thought it was important to go pray and give thanks for the end of the war and for all those who had lost, loved one, you know, stopped and prayed. When he, when their daughter was dying of, of cancer, when Robin was dying of cancer, he was certainly involved in all kinds of things here 
in the state of Texas. But every morning in the way on the way to work, he stopped at a church by himself to pray. And then, you know, I, I could tell story after story like that. But I think it, it's quite poignant and it really speaks to the time in which we're living. After he was inaugurated as president, he said, he got to the podium and said, now the first thing I want to do is to pray. I'm going to, I'm not going to give a speech. The first thing I'm going to do as your president is to pray. And then he ends that prayer with the words of the only proper use for uh, power is to serve. And I think that shaped who he was and his reliance on our Lord for, to sustain him and carry him and guide him. I mean, that shaped his decisions about everything from uh, the, you know, the war in Kuwait that, you know, a lot of people, there's still controversy over that war, but I, I know from my discussions with him and I also know from discussions with secretary James A. Baker is also a member of the church here. So that's who's, who's really at 92, quite vibrant and healthy and still in church every week. He was in church this last Sunday, but hearing the two of them talk before they conducted that war on behalf of our nation and, and to liberate Kuwait, they walked through Augustine's just war theory. I mean, you know, it wasn't a political decision. It was, we are trying to liberate this country that wants to be liberated. So I, I think we need powerful people to rely on the great power that sustains us all. But I mean, really rely on it, not just talk about it. So I often say what I saw in him, and I think what a lot of people saw in him, was that he never used religion to further his career or his politics. He drew instead on his faith to inform and shape him and what he did for us. I think so many of us are cynical now when it comes to the relationship between religion and politics. And I can see a president saying a prayer at the inauguration ceremony and maybe some of us listening saying, oh, come on. Like, oh, this is just a thank you to the religious voters. It's not really this authentic display of faith. Is it my own fault for being cynical? Have we changed to sort of feel that way? Or is it still possible to have those types of authentic displays of personal faith from political leaders? Yeah, great question, Kelsey, because I think what I try to tell in this book is maybe lots of people did think that the day he got up and offered that prayer. But what I try to show is that there's a long history and tradition and practice of faith from the beginning when he was a young, baptized into the church all the way through to the end of his life. And the same for Barbara. And so, yep, you could say, I mean, lots of people certainly have used religion to further, you know, try to cozy up to this particular group. But what I hope this book does is help launch people past the fact that, some, yep, some people do that. But he did not. And look at what he did in his four years. I mean, everybody, universally, both sides of, of the political aisle feel like he was the most successful one-term president the nation ever had because of all that he accomplished nationally and internationally. But I would say beyond that, and what I got to observe, of course, and my wife is to spend that last 11 and a half years with both of them. You know, we talked some about politics, but we didn't talk about it much. In our conversations, they talked more about how much we used to call it the three Fs, their friends, their family, and their faith meant to them. And at the very end, the faith. You know, I have some of that cynicism too now. I see it all the time. But you also see it practiced in in their piety. I never, ever heard the president in 11 and a half years say one negative thing about anybody. And, and we were around him a lot. We were around him when 
days were good and days were bad. I mean, there were plenty of time. His party won, his party lost. He's, you know, it just, you just, he just didn't do it. Does that make you think of our contemporary politics as substantially different from the good old days, from bygone era? I mean, in politics today, it feels like if you never say a, a negative thing about anyone, you know, you're going you're gonna to be perceived as maybe, yes, gentle and kind and faithful and loyal, but not tough, not a winner, not sparring enough. I wonder, you know, if you might comment on the, he mentioned being an Episcopal when he went to the Southern Baptist Convention, I remember in 91, I was just listening last night to the, and the demeanor of that is gentle. The demeanor of that is not public with your religious faith. You don't wear it on your sleeve. It's authentic, but it's at home. It's private. And you tell stories in the book about a lot of stories about that, cleaning up your own dog poop, giving the coat to the usher at church who is cold outside on the way in and doesn't want any fanfare at all. But is the institution itself inherently public as it is contra that? And especially now, a couple of decades later, is it different? Is that part of why you wrote the book? Why did you write the book now? Yeah, I think it, I'd be disingenuous to say I was not in part inspired, at least to kind of reflect on where we're living now and 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 think, wow, because I grew I grew up in the frankly the Reagan Bush era, and I remember there were lots of times when people on both sides of the aisle worked together for the greater good. And even when there's a great moment, and this is not in the book, but there's a great moment when uh, President Bush and uh, or then Vice President Bush and, and Mike Dukakis are in a debate and they are asked about abortion. And Vice President Bush says, this is my position, but you know, I'm not going to assail Mike Dukakis for his position because of my own faith and the things I believe. I believe a certain way and he believes a different way. And so I, I don't know, well, I think I have some ideas, but I don't know when differing with somebody suddenly meant they were your enemy. And listen, in my arena, in the faith arena, we see that. And so I, I think part of what I'm I'm hopeful about is that this book will remind people nostalgia can do two things. One, it can make you think, oh, those were the good old days. We probably felt that when Queen Elizabeth died, you know, oh, remember Downton Abbey days or whatever. But it can also kind of make you go, and can't we do that again? I mean, is it not, is it impossible to kind of look at that again? And there's just remarkable stories of how people back then did, did not see each other as enemies. One of the things I heard Barbara say, and this I don't think this is in the book either, but when somebody she was approached by a young senator who was thinking about running for president, actually flew up to Kenny Buckport and spent some time with him. And this person did run and they didn't win. But but, but she said, he came and said, so what, what, what advice do you have? And she said, well, one thing is when we were running, when we were in office, everybody moved their whole families to Washington. And so we were often in church together or going to lunch together or Bible stay together, or we saw each other at picnics and things like that. The whole family was part of it. And suddenly we were involved in each other's lives. So we wouldn't really think of each other as enemies. We would think of them as just people with whom we disagree, but we didn't take those four fights out into the real world. Well, now we've taken the four fights out into the real world and those with whom we differ become our enemies, which is antithetical to the gospel. I mean, that's, you know, I, I include a lot of scripture as we get toward the end of the book. And if somebody professes the faith of Christianity and then acts in a way that is thoroughly inconsistent with that in the public square, we should all have a problem with that, actually. Don't get me fired up because I can 
<laughs> I can preach like a Baptist if you want me to. <laughs> uh, speaking of of maybe trying to be that way again, being more thoughtful, being more pious, does it start with having different sorts of candidates that are very grounded in their faith? Or does it start with voters prioritizing different characteristics, if that makes sense? Do we bring the change from the masses or do we bring it from the actual candidates? I think both. I would say of those two, the first one is perhaps the most dangerous because if we say, you know, that would run against what we're trying to promote. Uh, if you're saying, I'm looking for the candidate who says this, does this, was brought up this way. Well, that could be true or that may not be true. It could be true for the political season. I will actually turn a little bit toward a talk I heard John Meacham give not too long ago in which he probably shouldn't have mentioned his name here, but now oh, I'm glad you did. But, He's a friend. Done. So, uh, so, but he, you know, he said, he said something pretty interesting and I was with a group of clergy and I actually invited him to come talk to the clergy at my church. And, and he said, you know, a lot of us have a distaste for some of the people who are now in office on either side and also a distaste for the climate of politics. He said, but you know, those politicians are actually not to blame for the trickle down of discourse. It's really the problem what we've begun to incentivize behavior and verbiage and discourse that is very distasteful. So we're putting it, we're, America's putting people in office and we know what they are. We've seen what they do. And so he actually said, and this is a word to your listeners, he said, so if we want something different, then we've, we have to change the that incentive process. We've got to convince people that, no, what we really want in office are people who, they don't have to be doves or politics is blood sport. You've got to be tough, but you can be different. And he said, and then he paused, and this was a big group of clergy, and he goes, and you know whose job that is? It's your job to talk about the kinds of things that you want in your leaders. And that was evident in the book, Although so was a surprise to me, which is a strong mother. I remember years ago, David Gergen, who recently spoke to some Faith Angle journalists, saying that most good presidents had a strong mother. Mm -hmm. And some grad student discovered that and made the case, and I can't remember the numbers exactly, but it was overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And what you describe about his correspondence with his mother was, I didn't know the Bush biography well enough, but I, it, it was thick. Right. It was candid. It was transparent. It was honest. It covered decision-making. It covered questions about sex, about whether to get married or not. What would you say about the shared responsibility of parents alongside clergy in that long-term cultivation? Well, yeah. I mean, they were, particularly his mom, I mean, the parents were religious folk, but particularly his mom was was very faithful in passing that on. One of the ways she did that, you mentioned the Episcopal Church, and she read to them from our Book of Common Prayer. And you know, the Book of Common Prayer, actually a lot of that just comes right out of Scripture. So, you know, he was kind of nourished in Holy Scripture through the Book of Common Prayer and their regular participation in church. She was very strong, and then and then Barbara was very strong. You know, I in talking with the children, who I got to know all of them to varying degrees, you know, I was with them or some of them I got to be very close to. And actually they said that we never saw Dad mad. And they, which was interesting. And, you know, they said, but mom, they would always kind of pause and say, but mom. And then, of course, he, he has the well-known 
nickname of the enforcer. And <laughs> I think there was some, some truth to that. But yeah, I, th- I, you know, I think being rooted in the faith through the witness of your parents is very important. This is armchair psychoanalyzing, but do you agree with that statement that, that we tend to marry the spouse with whom we can complete the conversation of our opposite gendered parent? That is, and I'm not a psychiatrist. <laughs> so, but I, I will say, I think from my, I think, I think it's probably fair to say that Barbara was probably had a spunkiness that was not particularly evident in his mom. She, and I think I mentioned this in the book, she she was uh, early in their marriage. She was at the house and the president's father came down and found her smoking. And he said, well, who told you you could do that? And she said, well, you can ask that question when you're my husband. And, and so, you know, it's like, you're not going to bother me with that question. And, but then they became fast friends, you know, it was uh, interesting to see. So, When you talked about the president sometimes reflecting on past decisions he had made, did he struggle at all? feeling like, oh, I wish I had done that instead, or it's just difficult to hold sort of the fate of so many lives in your hand. I can understand having sort of just so many emotions to carry for the rest of your life with that type of power that that he held. So do you feel as if he was at peace, that he was regularly sort of working through those emotions, or is it something that perhaps he continued to struggle with? Yeah. I can answer that clearly. He said he had no regrets about the way he served and no regrets about the decisions he made. Even if others disagree with those decisions, perhaps the most difficult for him, and I think everybody knew it, was when he literally broke his no new taxes pledge. And his political advisors, many of them said, well, you're just committing political suicide. And he said, I may be, but it's the right thing to do at the time. And it, you, people may disagree with that, but I mean, that, that was a huge, he got up in front of everybody while running and said, no new taxes. And then literally broke that pledge, but did it with a speech around why he had to do it. And he said, have no regrets about it. Certainly has no regrets about Kuwait and other people may feel differently about that. Although that country's remained free, has no regrets about what he did and to help foster the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Thanks. And I would say thanks be to God toward that end. And that he is held in such high regard in that part of the world. My wife and I were able to visit Hungary and Prague a few years ago. And if they ever found out what I did for a living, they wanted me to pass on to the family how much they were respected, which I think, you know, I think probably is rare to say that you got to the end and you didn't have regrets. I mean, but, but again, he, so much of what he did, I think, was soaked in his prayer life and his church attendance, and he felt like he was doing what he, as a servant with power, was called to do. Well, certainly it felt like he had such a strong foundation. Like when you spoke about going to church to pray when their daughter Robin was facing cancer treatments, and that was before the political career that was saying, like, God, let me turn this difficult situation over to you. And so he laid this strong foundation, the whole family did, that then guided them all through more challenging moments. That was something that was in my head as I read, is that you can't wait until you're in the thick of the storm to sort of build up some of these religious muscles that you have to really commit in the beginning and quieter moments and then be able to rely on those routines moving forward. Yeah. And I think one of the things I loved about he he had a comfort level with himself 
I mean, what you saw was what you got. And a lot of people said he was not the best orator, but he liked to make fun of himself. I mean, you know, he he didn't mind being poked. For, you, know, you remember, well, this, this probably way predates you, Kelsey, maybe you a little bit, Josh, but when Dana Carvey used to do the George Bush imitations and, and George Bush would say, I never said any of those things. I never acted that way. But, and then, but then the last, his last day in the white house, they had a big lunch. And what did he do? He invited Dana Carvey to come out. They said that he had the, them announced that the president was about to come out and Dana Carvey came out and did a whole Bush routine for the staff on his last day in office, which was one of his saddest days. You know, he really hated leaving Washington back then, but it real comfort level with him. And I think part of that grew out of his faith. I think he, he could make fun of himself and he, but he, at the same time, there's a poignant moment. And I, I found this frankly in my research of doing the book, because I remember there was a time because it made the press when he went to the, grocery store. And he, it was the first time he had seen some of the newfangled ways they check you out at the grocery. And boy, he got pummeled for that about being disconnected from the real world. And he was given a press conference. Somebody from the press started kind of poking at him about that. Are you really connected with the real world? And do you really understand the way people? And he said, well, have you ever watched your daughter die? And that pretty much ended the press conference. And I think that came right out of his heart. Speaking of his relationship with his family, can you talk about the role uh, President Bush himself played perhaps in his own children's faith formation? I remember you referenced at one point that he saw his grandchildren in the Christmas pageant, but was he able to sort of help shape their own religious lives or did you feel as if that was perhaps left to Barbara? Uh, I think, and and I think Jeb, Reference, you know, Jeb does the forward there, and Jeb references this. He said, we learned a lot more by watching our parents than being told what to do by our parents. And so that consistent showing up at church, that consistent, you know, President Bush and Barbara were very, not just active in church, but they're active in the ministries of the church. So he taught Sunday school before he went to Washington. He served coffee on Sunday morning. He was an usher. She taught Sunday school. She became a part of this group called the Saintly Stitchers that helped stitch Negroes for the pews at the church, which she was doing until a week before she died. So I think that that important piece was always important for them. And of course, we witnessed this several times. To And people think, well, this is just a little thing. But again, the consistency. And again, I'm trying to show that throughout the book. But it was important for them to pray before they ate their meals. And then toward the end of the, their lives, the last, particularly those last two years, really, from his first steep decline was in 2012. And then, of course, he lived till 2018. But what I saw more and more and more of was the desire to pray together, to sit together, to share communion together, to talk about life here and life to come. And, and so just that, I think a lot of what shaped the children was the observation and you see that, frankly, you see that in the, the grandchildren, too. A lot of them involved in service to the community and beyond themselves. It seems like public service is a blessing and a curse, obviously, for many reasons. But once you're public, people watch you. Once you're public, people observe your your habits, your your manifestations of faith, as well as many other things. 
And I guess I'm curious about your lessons or norms about public performative engagement. Was it helpful to the rest of the church to have the Secret Service there in the room or a little bit of a distraction, a little bit more like theater, the reason that Reagan didn't go to church? Was it helpful to the kids and the next generation coming up to see that display, even from a family who disliked display in all its forms? Well, I would say, first of all, you know, the Secret Service were there when they were there, but they were you know, almost in the background. There was a certain protocol around all that, but, you know, they usually arrived early. But it got to be where everybody in the church just kind of knew that, expected that and saw that. So, but I, yeah, I think absolutely, Josh, if, you know, just seeing that they would show up. I remember we had been to an event with them on a, on a Saturday night in College Station, which is a pretty good drive from here. And there was a number of social events around that event. And finally, I turned to my wife and I said, well, tomorrow's Sunday. I, you know, we got to go. I got to get to church and get ready for church tomorrow. So we left. And as we were driving home, I said, well, we won't see them tomorrow. There's no way they're going to come because, gosh, because there was another event after the last event. Well, we showed up the next morning and so did they. You know, and I was like, that speaks volumes that they they could easily. I often would say to people when they were active, I don't talk about this as much anymore, when people are joining the church, one of the things I think is it's important to go to church. So when somebody's joining, I, I would say, you know, these are two people who have every reason and every excuse in the world not to show up. They could say, I'm busy. I'm doing these kinds of things. I'm in my 80s. I'm in my early 90s. And yet they did consistently do that. You've already spoken about it in many different stories, but just say a little bit more about their place in the congregation. Did other worshipers have a chance to have that same type of friendship, closeness, with the former president and first lady, did it feel like they could get close to their fellow worshipers? Yeah, absolutely. They never they never kind of made a show of coming in. They would stop and talk to people after church. They didn't try to rush out at the end. And the last few years were difficult years and mobility and illness and things like that. And, uh, you know, there were times when I would hear later from Barbara, that was a long sermon. But when you're older and tireder and your body's weaker, it seems like a longer sermon. But no, I, I think they were very accessible. And, and in their younger days, it was not uncommon at all on the on the really packed days at church for them to get up and move or get up and, you know, if they saw an elderly person come in, pregnant mom with kids. I've heard stories all through the years about the times they didn't expect to see them get up and off of their chair but they or their place in the pew, but they did. Can I ask if you had anything that surprised you in doing research for the book? I don't know if you looked at the personal diaries or how much you went into the papers. Yeah. yeah. Of course, there's a lot written in his All the Best, which is probably my favorite book about him. It's it's a lot of his correspondence and diary entries from beginning to end, I think. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned it, Josh, a few minutes ago when he has this kind of exchange with his mom about sex. And he said, he said they got concerned that his uh, sister got caught what we used to call in the old days, necking with a friend. And she was really upset by it. And the president ended up writing this long letter to mom saying, mom, listen, first of all, <laughs> lots of people do that. But then he goes into this kind of discussion about why he had made the decision to be chaste until marriage. But then he kind of, in a kind of typical George Bush way, says, of course, lots of other people don't think that, but that's where I am. You know, you and dad modeled certain things for us that we still respect, but you need to know, Mom. <laughs> Times are a changing, or whatever. But I think he would. He continued that kind of personal piety. It was really important to him. But I mean, there were things like that. And I think the only thing that surprised me, I think, is to see the long train of from beginning to end. And we spent so much time together 
which is why personally their death was a loss to my wife and me. They had very close friends. The staff loved him. The staff here in, in Houston, very close. I mean, we were all like family. Me, not near as much as people like his his chief of staff, Gene Becker, his medical aide, Evan Sisley, I mean, but who were with him all the time. But we were with him a whole lot. And so to witness, which is the title of the book, witness, frankly, the tenderness with which they treated one another up until the death of first Barbara and then the family around him and to witness the power of desiring the presence of God in those moments. It became clear to me, I wasn't a interloper. They really wanted somebody there to pray with them and anoint them with oil and lay hands on them and pray them right out of this world into the next. And I think you would say back to your first question, Kelsey, would I have ever guessed that that would have been part of my journey here? Absolutely not. I often said I thought I'd probably retire before they died because they were so healthy. But seeing that at the end, I've, and I've been with lots of people who have died, but seeing that from the, you know, you would say the two of the most powerful people that walked the planet Earth at the same time, they were just like Kelsey and Josh and Russ, you know. How did that close relationship with them and being able to witness those quiet moments shape your view of other politicians? In other words, did it help crack at that cynicism I was describing earlier and say, oh, these are really humans? They may not always appear that way on Twitter or on TV, but you sort of feel the humanity of it. You know, because of the president, I'm clearly aware of the fact. And I think I say several times in the book, why was I here? <laughs> why, why am I in this? I have absolutely nothing to contribute to a conversation between a president and a secretary of state or whomever. There were lots of opportunities where I looked at my wife and I would whisper, why are we here? We have nothing to add. And so I think, as I said at the end, what, the reason we're there is to, to witness this and share this story. But yes, I knew after spending all that time that anytime I met somebody else, it would be, I needed to be with them the same way I was with him. I mean, he orchestrated a nice visit for my son and my wife and I with his son, 43, before he left office. And, you know, from the moment we walked in, you know, I felt comfortable. But in large part, that was due to the setup by him. There was a moment when Mitt Romney came to town and was going to, was considering at that point running for president. And 41's office called and said, do you want to come over and meet with him? I think he might want to talk about the faith aspect of a Mormon running for blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, can I bring my son? Who <laughs> was a little, I think he was around 14 at the time. And the president said, well, of course. And so we sat there for 45 minutes and talked. And I remember looking at my son thinking, do you realize what's going on in this moment? And of course, Romney did not win. But but yeah, it, it enabled me to be comfortable with, with folks like that. But again, I think that authenticity, I mean, I, I, I hope this for every clergy person. The world, I think, desperately needs what we're called to do, which is be clear about the love of God and the redemption we have in Christ and the, the message we have to share and the hope there is in the gospel. And if we let that be colored by our angst or fear or worry about the kind of people we're around, there's always going to be somebody in the pew. If it's not the president, then it's the chairman of your church board, or it's the mayor, or it's the, the loudest voice in the room at the church, whoever it is. You can't be intimidated by that stuff. That's good. That line about faith, core true faith, tempering power and its limits is rich. In fact, it makes me think of one story of a 
a sitting senator who came to Washington not so long ago. He got here and he got in the in the these various committee hearings and he said, Man, what am I doing here? You know, just overwhelmed by the the magnitude of it all. And about a year went by and his his takeaway was, Man, what are they doing here? <laughs> Well, I, to know I, I will share a story that's not in the book either, but Jim Baker, who Secretary Jim Baker, who's a very active member of the church, I can say has become a friend and we sup together and go to lunch together and we've been hunting together and we spent a lot of time together. He now in his senior years, he's given several talks at St. Martin's and he usually does not talk about his years in Washington. He talks about his faith. And one of the things he talks about is a lesson that God gave to him at the time, you know, he served in so many roles in Washington, but I think it was when he was secretary of state. And he said, one day I was in the, in my car, reserve Lincoln town car, whatever, driving into the white house on from Pennsylvania Avenue, going into the white house. And of course I felt like so important and so special. And he said, I looked down Pennsylvania Avenue and I saw one of my predecessors walking down the street without any secret service, without any protection. He was just walking down. And he said, I think God was saying to me, this is just for a season. And this power is elusive. And you need to do what you can while you're in this office, because one day you'll be walking down the street at that same way. And it, that really did shape him. Well, and I don't believe that the Bushes ever got to the point where they're just a random person passing on the street. But it does feel that they perhaps lived that same value, which is, it's not about, well, you say it several times in the book, it's not about the me. It's sort of like, let's serve the community, let's serve each other. They worked so hard to serve you and your wife when you were visiting with them. So yeah, it's about sort of not getting too big in your britches and (laughs) focusing on sort of what you can offer to others. Yeah. And Kelsey, one of the, I mean, they're fun. I do, I think I put some humor in the book and I put some fun moments in the book. And Barbara often did her own grocery shopping right here in the community. She'd go to, you'd see her, I'm not doing a commercial for Walgreens, but you'd see her at Walgreens hanging on her buggy and pulling something off the shelf. There's a gas station right down here at the corner. They take great pride in the day. She pulled up in her car to get gas and they ran out and asked her if they could take a picture with it, got it up in the gas station. But when she, you know, when we were planning her funeral, she, she said, well, I just don't, I, I don't, who's going to come? She actually said that to several people. Who's going to come? And several of us, her staff and myself included, I said, Barbara, the whole town thinks you are their best friend because of the way you lived your life. Everybody in this city is, and because it was by invitation only, it had to be because we're limited in size there. I mean, I said, Barbara, the problem you're going to have is a lot of people are going to think they're going to get an invitation because you talk to them at Walgreens about, you know, the aspirin you pulled off the shelf or whatever, you know. What was it like being with both Barbara and the former president in their final quiet moments, playing a huge role in their funerals, in their planning for their funerals? Were they at peace in that sort of final period of their life? Yeah, they were absolutely at peace. And we could talk for a whole nother hour on this. I mean, but I would say to be with him and to be with her. And the family wanted that. They wanted me there. I mean, we didn't live too far from where they lived. And I'd spent lots of time with both of them. And so when the moments were coming, I got a phone call and was there in in a matter of moments. And then it lasted, as it sometimes does. But I I reference this in the book. I mean, I've had times in my life when I felt the palpable presence of God. And I certainly did then. 
you know, there was a moment when we all, Barbara started to climb the morning of her last day in the morning and we lasted through the day and several of us sat with her. She had staff members, the medical aid, children and grandchildren, daughter-in-law, and the president only left her for a little while. But most of the days sat there and held her hand all day saying, I love you. I love you. Love you, Barbara, holding her hand. And then there was a moment when just the three of us were there. I was holding her. I was across from her holding one hand. He was on the other side holding the other, rubbing her hand. And and he looked at me. And if we were doing visual here, I would show you what he did. He just kind of smiled, pointed at her, looked at me, smiled, pointed at her, and then pointed to heaven. Because I think it was such a tender moment. He could not even say it. And I, and then he, he nodded his head at me, kind of cocked his head. And I said, yes, yes, Mr. President, she's, she's going to heaven. And she died, you know, a few hours after that. He had lots of questions about heaven over the years. But as I say in the book, and actually, as I said in his homily, he never said, is there a heaven? Am I going to heaven? Am I going to make it? <laughs> Am I going to make the cut? His questions were always, what do you think it's like? What do you think we get to do? How old will we be? Well, I see Robin. Well, I see my daughter. And what, and of course, I was able to answer out of my belief in what Scripture attests, that absolutely you'll see your daughter, and absolutely life will continue. And so when he died, and we were all, several of us were around him, there was this long pause, and we were all kneeling there. And I think we all realized in that moment the uh, intensity of what had just happened. It wasn't. It was the end of both of them on this side of the of the veil. Celtic Christians talk a lot about thin places when the line between heaven and earth is so thin they've interfered with each other. You know, and those those were thin moments for I think everybody who were around the two of them. I'll just quickly name that we got regretfully cut short in the closing minute of this recording, but I hope you sense its outgoing trajectory. Faith Angle links together clerics, scholars, and journalists especially in the context of shared public life. Thanks again to Russ Levinson and Kelsey Dallas for their investing time. And like the last episode, we recommend the book, especially heading into the holidays. Thanks for listening.